The sermon text this evening is from Psalm chapter 50, verses 2 and 3. These are the words of God. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. Let us pray. O Father, we praise you for your infinite wisdom. We thank you for making good on your promise to send a Savior to crush the serpent's head, to save the world from sin and death, and to renew all creation so that your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Come unto us now by the power of your Holy Spirit, for we ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Well, tonight we celebrate the fourth and final Sunday of Advent. Uh, Advent simply means coming or arrival. And uh, traditionally, the first Sunday of Advent marks the beginning of the new church year. And then the final Sunday of Advent marks the beginning of uh, Christmas tide or uh, the 12 days of Christmas. It was also uh, customary in the church to preach a sermon on each Sunday of Advent that uh, focused on one of the different comings or Advents of our Lord. So uh, in Holy Scripture, Jesus is said to come to us in many ways, and so uh, this is a season not only of uh, remembering his first coming to earth as a baby, but also to remember the other ways that he has promised to come to us. So this evening, I want to uh, consider uh, the fourfold coming or the fourfold advent of our Lord. You can consider this uh, four different advent sermons all condensed into one. So what are the four ways in in which Jesus is said to come to us in Holy Scripture? Well, the first, as I mentioned before, is Christ coming to us in the Incarnation. This coming of God in the flesh was prophesied in manifold ways in the Old Testament. For example, Micah 5.2 speaks of a ruler who will come from Bethlehem, quote, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. So whoever this ruler is that will come from Bethlehem is someone who also has existed from time everlasting, from ancient of days. Who else but God can be said to go forth from everlasting? Likewise, Isaiah 9, 6 speaks of a child who will be born, and it says, The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So Jesus is called Wonderful because a single name cannot suffice to describe all his excellency. As the angel of the Lord said to Samson's father in Judges thirteen eighteen, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Jesus is also called Counselor because he possesses the fullness of all wisdom. He is called the mighty God because, well, he's the mighty God and his power is infinite. He is called the everlasting father, not referring to God the father, but to the son as the one who begets many sons to glory, Hebrews 2.10. And as it says in Isaiah 22.21, he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. It is in this sense that Jesus is the everlasting father. Jesus is also called the Prince of Peace because he is the one mediator between God and man. 
And as it says in Ephesians 2.14, he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. So who else but God could be this child born and given to rule forever? His goings forth were of old, even from everlasting, and yet this eternal word from the Father was made flesh and dwelt among us. So Christ comes to us, and he comes in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, born to save us from our sins. The God who cannot change, the God who cannot die, took to himself a human nature so that he could, so that he could die and could suffer on a cross, and in so doing, conquer death and our fear of death, that fear of death that keeps many enchained. As Jesus says in John 10, verse 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. None of the prophets ever spoke that way. Elijah never spoke that way. Who else can say, I have power to lay it down, and then when I'm dead, I can take it up again? Who else can say this but God? It is this first coming of Christ, of God in the flesh, that establishes all the other comings in time and in history. And during his first advent and ministry on earth, Jesus promised also to come into us. And so we'll call this a second advent, the coming of Christ into our soul. So first he comes uh, uh, as God incarnate, and now he comes into our soul. Uh, Jesus says in John 14, 23, the following, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So have you ever thought, how does Christ and the Father come to dwell in us. How does God come and dwell inside of you? Well, to answer this, first we must consider who we are as human beings and you know, what possible places God could come into us. Because God is immaterial, it should be obvious to you that he cannot come into you or dwell in you like food goes into your body. And of course, Jesus says in Matthew 15, 17, whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated. So, you know, transubstantiation notwithstanding, God uh, does not come and dwell in our bodies in any corporeal or material fashion, nor could he, because God is a spirit, John 4, 24. So if it's not our body that God comes into, well, there's really one, only one other place, God could come and dwell, and that is in your soul. Now, in order to understand how God comes into your soul, well, you need to know what your soul is. Well, the soul is that which gives life to the body. In technical terms, we say that the soul is the substantial form of the body. It is what gives us our form, our shape. So the essence of human nature, what it is to be a human person, is to have a soul and body joined together, and uh, when they are separated, we call that death. And yet, even within the soul, we can further distinguish different powers of the soul. The highest of our powers are what we call our rational powers, or our intellectual 
powers. Those two words are interchangeable, rational, intellectual. In biblical terms, this is the image of God in you. It's what sets you apart from all the other animals. You're a rational animal. You are an intellectual animal. It's sometimes also called in scripture uh, the spirit or the mind or even the heart. So Jesus says, you know, where does all the evil come from? It comes from the evil thoughts in your heart. Okay, so spirit, mind, heart, soul, these are uh, mostly synonymous in many places in scripture. And it refers to that strictly immaterial aspect of your soul, which we can further distinguish into two powers or places. So here's where God comes into you. There's two powers of your intellectual, um, the intellectual part of your being. The first is just called your intellect or your reason. And this part of you is ordered toward that which is universally true. So your intellect is where you apprehend things. It's where you judge whether something is true or false. It's where you deliberate and reason and come to conclusions. It's where you abstract species from your physical senses and then retain them in your memory. The other place, so that's the first place, your reason, your intellect, it's where you know, know things, you know truths. The second place is your will, your free will. Uh, this is also called, at times, your rational appetite. So when your body wants to eat that you know, third piece of cake, <laughs> there's something up here that says, I shouldn't do that. There's, there's different appetites. You, your reason, you want something more than just the, I want another piece of, of chocolate cake or whatever it is that, that tempts you. So we have a free will. We have this rational appetite. And this is ordered toward that's, that which is universally good. So your intellect is ordered towards that which is true and your will is ordered towards that which is good. It cannot but help to go towards the thing that it thinks is good. Now, sin is when you... Uh, settle for a lesser good than God, right? You're always choosing something that you think is good in the moment, but it actually turns out to be not the greatest good for you. So your will is where you are, are inclined to things, you enjoy things, you delight in them, you take counsels where you choose. Put another way, the intellect is where you judge what is true, the will is where you love what is good. And together, these two rational powers are given to us by God to order everything beneath them. So you're given this power of intellect and will so that you will make good decisions with your senses, with your bodily appetites, with all those lower places, your emotions, your passions, right? How is it that Paul can say things like, rejoice always, give thanks all the time, pray without ceasing? How could he tell us to do that? That seems so impossible. Well, no, it is possible because God has given us the faculties to actually rule our emotions, rule our passions, and direct them. This is how you can be angry and yet without sin. So it's in these two highest places of our soul that God comes and indwells us by grace. Christ dwells in us as the truth that we apprehend and hold on to. This is also known as faith. What is faith? It's where you hear the gospel. You hear who Christ is and what he has done for you, and you say, I believe that is true. That is a judgment in your intellect, and you say, 
Yes, I believe that. That's faith. That's faith. But there's something else beyond faith, and that is where Christ comes and dwells in us as the object of our love. We call this being the beloved in the lover. It's also called uh, charity. So when, you, uh, you know, when we tell our spouse or our children that they are you know, inside of our hearts, this is basically what we mean, right? In a similar way, Christ comes into us as the knowledge that is true, that we believe in, and as the object that we love and freely choose to embrace. This is how Christ comes and dwells inside of you. This is also why uh, Psalm 14, uh, the psalmist speaks of uh, the atheist who says, there is no God. And it says, because God is not in his thoughts. So when God is not in your thoughts, you're being like the person who is an atheist, right? Or in Romans 1, you're like the person who suppresses the knowledge of God. You know, it's all around you. You, you kind of know, your conscience tells you there is a God, but you just keep shutting it down. Right? That's resisting the truth, resisting the Holy Spirit. So this is how Christ comes and dwells into us. And let me give you just, just a couple examples. There are, there are tons of these throughout the Bible once you start uh, to notice this. But listen to Ephesians three seventeen to 19. Paul says, I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Look at that text closely and think about what is happening there. The knowledge is there, the love is there, the will is there. The fullness of God comes into you in this way. Likewise, in 1 John 4, 12 and 16, it says, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him. And he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Do you see? where God comes and dwells in you. If you want God to dwell in you, love your neighbor. (laughs) But he says, if we love one another, God is in you. His love has been perfected in you. If you confess the knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, it says God abides in that person and he in God. So God is said to come and dwell inside of us when we have true knowledge of him by faith, and when we love him and love our neighbor. So if you want Christ to come and live within you, you must first know who he is in his first coming, and then you must adore him. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. 
So that is the coming of Christ into our soul. Christ comes first in the incarnation. He then comes by grace into our soul. And then the third advent or coming of Christ is when he comes to us at our death. Jesus says this in John 14, 3. He says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now the context of this statement is the imminent death of Christ, and the disciples are afraid that Jesus is you know, going to die and leave them. And so to give them comfort, Jesus tells them that although he is indeed going away, He's going to prepare a place for them, and afterwards, he will come and receive them to himself so that they will be together always. So where is Jesus going? Well, the place that Jesus is going is to his Father. Just before this, in verse 2, he says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, According to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, our life in this mortal body is like living in a house that wears out. It's like living in a fixer-upper, a house that breaks down, it's got issues, and eventually it needs to be demolished. That's us. We are all fixer-uppers that eventually get bulldozed. Some of us sooner than others, right? Paul says that while we are in this earthly house, quote, we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. So the promise that Jesus gives his disciples is that there is a house not made with hands that is eternal in the heavens, and it awaits us when we die. Whose house is it? It's the Father's house. And there are many mansions or rooms inside of it. That is, there are many ways in which we will enjoy the infinite happiness of God. And so for the Christian who has Christ dwelling in them by knowledge and by love, Christ has come to you. Well, death is when Christ comes to us with an inseparable fullness. Death is when Christ brings us to the Father's house and we behold God face to face. For as Jesus promises in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So if God is your refuge and strength in this life, then when you die, he will become your home and dwelling place forever. This is how Christ comes to us at death. He comes to receive us into everlasting life. Finally, Jesus promises to come again at the final judgment. So after Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts 1, The angels who were standing there say to the disciples the following, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So just as Jesus ascended bodily, physically, into heaven, so also he shall come bodily, physically, back to this earth. This Final coming in judgment is described in uh, multiple ways in different places. But listen to how Revelation 20 describes it. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, 
small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This present life is passing away. We are only here for a little while and then judgment. And how you feel about the final coming of Christ will depend on how you respond to the first coming of Christ. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do you receive from Him forgiveness for your sins? Do you love Him and embrace Him as your ruler, king, and master, as your first and best friend? Well, if so, then the final coming of Christ will be your victory. It will be the day of your resurrection unto glory. It will be a day of crowning and entrance into an ever-increasing enjoyment of Christ's kingdom. But if you refuse this Christ, if you do not repent of your sins, then this life is as close to heaven as you'll ever get. And that's pretty sad. So do not choose the lake of fire. Do not choose the second death. Choose Christ today and know that this time when he comes, he will not keep silent. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.